0: Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, change makers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hi, welcome to Impact the World. My guest for this show is not only a friend, but also somebody who wrote one of my favorite spiritual books, Anita Mojani, and the book in question is Dying to Be Me. After a near-death experience and a recovery from cancer that doctors said was impossible, Anita embarked on a journey as not only an author of this book that recounted her experience that went on to sell over a million copies and has been translated into 45 languages, but she has become not only a speaker and a teacher, but also an advocate of self-love. So for this interview, I got to ask Anita about that book, about that experience, and I was delighted that her husband Danny agreed to join us for the last part of the interview to talk about his experience, both what he went through with his wife and what the two of them have been doing in the time since, working together to bring their message and their work to the world. Hope you enjoy. Anita, welcome to the show. So good to have you here.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you for having me here. Um, You know, I just adore talking to you. So this was such a pleasure.
0: Same, same. And you know, the, the pleasure for me was in being your friend this last few years, you know, my first introduction to you, like many people's introduction was reading your book, Dying to Be Me, which my friend gave me a copy of. It must have been around 2012, just after it had come out. And I remember being so moved by the book and your story. And, you know, in prepping for this interview, looking at your biography, you know, you've sold over a million copies of that book in 45 languages now. And I thought to myself, God, I mean, does that blow your mind when you think back to... You know when it all began.
1: Oh, I know. I still it it still feels surreal. I still can't believe it's me. It's really weird. It's like when people, um, you know, do introduce me or something, or when I read my own bio, it's like I'm reading someone else's bio, or or they're talking about someone else. I still because to me inside, I'm still little old me. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. I, no, I wondered about that for you, but but I have to say the book. I was recently interviewed by Sandy Sedgbeer for her 10 best spiritual book club. And I put Dying to Be Me as one of the most influential books for me. And I think the reason, yeah, no, I think the reason, I mean, it's beautifully written and it's an incredible story, what you went through. But I think also the title encapsulates its power for me, Dying to Be Me. And I read about you online the other day. It was in one of our, I think it was in our portal group Somebody had shared something of yours and they said, To me, Anita is one of the greatest teachers of self-love out there. And I I really feel that's true about you. And I think it's because in reading the pages of your book, you invited us all to see that as you were going through this what should have been fatal cancer experience, then when you go through your near-death experience and you get this second chance with life and the cancer miraculously clears up, you really teach us through the book and through your story that you were really unhappy as a person and didn't realize, even though you had good things in your life, quite how seriously you were taking life or how much pressure life felt like and, and the gift of coming through the other side of a near death experience and realizing that you know, you have to love yourself uh, and be having a, a love relationship with yourself in order to have a truly fulfilling life. That was a huge takeaway for me. Um, but perhaps for anyone who's new to you or has heard of you, but maybe hasn't read the book or knows your story, could you just give us a, a snapshot of, of, of your life back then and why you wrote the book?
1: Um, so the reason I wrote the book was because I, I really wanted everybody to know what we are doing to ourselves when we don't love ourselves. To me, it was so important. And there are things I say, things I said in the book, um, things I say on video, which are very, I guess, provocative or controversial, because um, I truly believe that the illness I had, that I gave it to myself. Now, I'm not blaming the victim, so to speak. I'm not saying people who have illnesses. I'm not saying it's your fault. We do it unconsciously. It's not your fault at all because we're all doing the best we can. But this is why I wanted people to know this. Um, So basically I was dying from terminal end stage cancer. And um, I had tumors the size of golf balls all over my lymphatic system. And I was, I weighed 85 pounds. My body had stopped absorbing nutrition. My lungs were filled with fluid. And, and I went into a coma and my organs shut down and the doctors said that these were my final hours and I wasn't coming back. But I left my body and went into this whole other state where I understood why I had the cancer. I realized that I had spent a lifetime of suppressing myself, putting myself last. Um, and I grew up in a culture where women are... Like, I guess, considered second class to men. In other words, a woman's worth is measured by how valuable she is to the men in her life. Mm. And, um, and, I was, and, and so basically growing up, I was being groomed for an arranged marriage and, and things like that. And our worth was measured by how good we are at housework. I hated housework. I was terrible at housework. So I always felt like such a failure, like such a loser all the things I love to do, I loved to be independent. I wanted a career. I wanted to make my own money. I wanted to travel the world. I kept getting told that you can't do that because you will be less desirable to the men. You'll be less, you'll less, your chances of getting married reduce if you are overeducated or overambitious or if you're a career woman. Um, So, Everything about me I felt was wrong. I felt, what's going on? Why am I not like the other women in my culture? And I suppressed all of those things about me to try and conform. And it was only in death did I realize that the greatest gift of life is to be who we are. It's to be who our soul intended us to be. And I realized that even though my Culture, my society seemed to suppress me. There were a lot of times when I rebelled, and I would rebel like I ran away from an arranged marriage, and and then um, and then I would feel shame after that because I would get ostracized, and I would feel shame, and I would again constrict and make myself small and dim my own light because I would have brought shame onto me and my family. But when I was on the other side and I looked back on my life. I felt that the greatest things I had done were when I rebelled because I was actually expressing myself. And I didn't realize this when I was living through it, but those were the times when I was actually inspiring young women in my culture to be who they are. And I only realized that in death. And so this is the irony, because one of the things that when I did come back is I. Like, Why do we only find this out after we die? This is crazy. People don't come back from death. Okay, maybe I did, but you're not supposed to come back from death. So I realized that actually we come into this life at birth knowing this. We know that, okay, I'm going to be different from everyone else. I don't want to conform. I want to teach people that it's okay to be different. But then we end up forgetting and suppressing and trying to be someone else and trying to fit in. And then we start fearing um, not fitting in. We start fearing disappointing people. We start becoming people pleasers, doormats. And that's what I did. I dimmed and dimmed my light and made myself invisible. And the cancer was literally my own energy being suppressed, turning inward instead of expressing itself outward to be who my soul wanted me to be. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what happened. Oh, and with this realization on the other side, um, um, actually, I, was, uh, I reached a point where I felt I had a choice as to whether to come back into my body or not. No part of me wanted to come back because it was so beautiful on that side. I was surrounded by love, I just felt so loved. I understood what self-love meant in a way I'd never understood it here. I realized we are love, we're pure essence. And um, my deceased father, who had died 10 years prior, he was there on that side to greet me. Now my dad and I had had a turbulent relationship, but here on the other side, all I felt from him was pure unconditional love. And I realized that when we cross over, we leave behind our gender, our culture, our beliefs, um, our religions. We leave all of that behind. And what crosses over is our pure essence, which is pure love. And, um, And I learned while I was there that it wasn't my time to die, that I needed to go back and fulfill my purpose. And... And it was so, so I realized that, so that's why I made the choice to come back. And when I made the choice to come back, my dad said, just go back and live your life fearlessly, he said. Um, And so that was when I came out of the coma. The doctors were shocked. My family were elated. Um, And in five days, the tumors had shrunk by about 60 or 70%. In five weeks, they let me go home from the hospital to live my life cancer-free. And that was in March 2006.
0: And the doctors were astounded by what they were seeing, right?
1: They were astounded. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And um, unfortunately, our medical paradigm is very, very stuck in certain ways of thinking. This is not a criticism towards the doctors. The doctors who treated me were very kind, very loving. But they couldn't explain it, and so when they can't explain something, they tend to explain it away. Mm. And so, um, and, and so the thing is that, but but they did they did say that they've not seen anything like this happen before. I've had many other um, scientists, oncologists, research my case, and they've said what is astounding is that they don't know where the cancer cells went in all those weeks in in those. Few short weeks because my body was completely emaciated. My organs had shut down, and they said for those billions of cancer cells to leave my body so quickly, um, it would have, it should have taken at least six to twelve months, even if I healed. So basically, when you're dying from cancer, your body there's a word I don't know what it is. They say po- t- coptosis, So there's a word where. It means your cells are dying. You're you're basically declining. But something happened in the NDE to flick a switch so that I started living. The cells stopped dying. I stopped producing cancer cells. So my body stopped dying and started to reach more towards healing, towards life. But so they said, that's number one. What, What flicked the switch? They don't know. Scientifically, they can't prove it. They said they don't know. And number two is even if the switch flicked, it takes six to 12 months for those billions of cancer cells to leave your body. How did they leave in five weeks that they couldn't find any trace of cancer in my body in five weeks? So there were two things they couldn't answer. I told them, I can tell you, because I was invited to attend a, a couple of medical conferences. Because of that, I was asked to come and speak at medical conferences about my case. And I said, I'll tell you what flicked the switch. And I told them what happened on the other side. You know, I said, it flicked because I understood, I understood what caused the cancer. I realized blah, blah, blah. And I told them exactly what I told you that I'd spent this whole life suppressing myself. And because they're looking at it purely from science, they were like, but you know, you have no proof that that you actually reached death state. Like, no, those were the Those were from the drugs. The chemicals in your brain made you see all that. And I was like, fine, believe what you want, but you still can't explain why it flicked or or how the cancer cells disappeared. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: I'm curious for you, when you were in the coma, how conscious, do you have conscious memories of being in the coma or is the NDE the only real conscious memory that you have?
1: Um, I was aware of everything that was happening here in this physical world around my body. I remember that very clearly. Um, my body was lying on the bed, but I was aware that my family were around me. I was aware of everything they were saying. I was aware of everything the doctors were doing, which I I articulated. I told them later and everybody was blown away. They said, your eyes were closed. And some conversations they had outside the room. And I was able to tell them, that's the doctor that said that I won't even make it through the night. And they were like, how did you hear that? And how did you know it was that doctor? And I said, that's the doctor that removed the fluid from my lungs in the middle of the night. And so they were all really, really surprised. But beyond that, I was also aware that my brother was on a plane rushing to see me. um, And I felt, oh gosh, I better not die just yet because he will be distraught. And, I, and there was, so there was a part of me that was conscious or aware that I can't completely, you know, I can't leave without saying goodbye to him. Um, so there were all these things that I was just aware of. And then, so it's like one level, which is the physical level of the hospital room, the doctors. Another level, which was outside the room, but still on the physical And within that level was also being aware that my brother was rushing to get a flight and everything. There was no way I could know all these things. And then the next level was being aware of my deceased father who had come to see me. And then there was yet another level beyond that, which was the clarity of who I am and my purpose and how I am actually connected to everyone and part of a whole. So there were all these different layers But yet there weren't hard lines dividing them. It was all just kind of like a rainbow. One color melts into the other, into the other.
0: Yeah. And when you came back, was there a period of time where you had to calibrate somewhat to the world again? Or did you come back completely like, I'm fearless, I'm ready, here we go. Or was there like a a period where you and your body had to recalibrate to this enormous experience that you'd had, which it was a near death experience, but is very akin to a spiritual awakening that other people describe without having the the death symptoms. I know it can often be a journey to come back from something like that.
1: Yeah, it was a huge journey. So one of the things I learned is that being alive is much harder than being dead.
2: Uh, <laughs>
0: like being in the body is much harder than being in these ethers. Like these ethers, it's like, oh, this is lovely. You have to come yeah, back down lovely. here and apply it.
1: <laughs> yes, it was a journey. So at first I felt like I had one foot on each side. Um, so the first few weeks, it was really surreal where I would just cry at everything, but not sad. I was... Um, it was like, oh, wow. It was almost like, um, wow, I'm getting a second chance. But it's like, I now know. Um, it was like I was given the keys. I was given the instruction sheet. It's like you come into, the, into life the first time and you're not given any instructions. It felt like I was given the instruction sheet on how to do it this time. It felt like heaven on earth in the beginning, in the first few weeks, um, So I want to say it was a bit like a honeymoon period because I did run into issues after. So at first I was elated. I was like jubilant. I wanted to shout it from the rooftops because honestly, I thought I had found the cure for everything, everything. I thought, nobody needs to suffer. Nobody needs to get cancer. Nobody needs to, you know, death is beautiful, but you don't have to struggle with life. And I had a, re- a renewed belief in so many things, which I mean, and those beliefs I still have them till today, but the roadblocks came from the other people. So that's what, what my struggle has been. But um, that state that, that, uh, that I came back with, I was jubilant because I realized that nothing is random. Like we're constantly being bombarded. With stories that we are that tell us that we are victims. In other words, when you listen to the news, you're constantly hearing. Um, like currently, as we're doing this video, um, we're constantly hearing about people dying of COVID, getting COVID, yeah. blah blah blah. But basically, even when you are generally exposed to this three dimensional world we live in, it's we are being given messages that are. Three, what I call three-dimensional messages or five-sensory messages. We are actually not five-sensory, three-dimensional beings. We're much more than that. We've come here with a soul. The soul has a purpose. The soul partakes in the decision of when to leave your body. You're not just going to die just like that unless your soul has agreed to do so. But whereas when we get these messages, we're walking around living as though we are victims of our circumstances that, oh, I could get cancer at any time. I'm a victim of cancer. I'm a victim of COVID. Um, I could die at any time. Those messages are not true. And so the problem is when I started sharing what I was sharing, um, people would feel that what I'm sharing is dangerous because it goes against, it was like uh, people would say, oh, what you're trying to say is that, um, that we don't have to worry about getting cancer. And you're telling people, and this is dangerous because you're encouraging people not to go seek treatment and stuff like that. And I was like, no, you got to do what makes you feel good. If it makes you feel safer to go and seek treatment, go for it. But, Absolutely. That, but, but the thing is, and I'm fine with that. I don't want people to feel fear of anything. But the whole point is, why did you get sick in the first place? why is it that, um, why is it that when people do get sick and then the doctor cures them with, with pharmaceuticals, they're told they're in remission. Um, And then they're told they're in remission because it can occur again. But whereas when we get down to finding out why did our bodies do that? Why did our bodies turn against us? We can actually heal from the inside out. So there's, Um, I know I'm kind of going all over the place because I get excited about this. But for me, what started to happen was that I started to realize that I couldn't share my message with everybody. It was a lot of the things I was saying and speaking about beautiful things on the other side and all. A lot of people interpreted my message as being dangerous. And I Mm -hmm. thought, that's not what I came back to do. That's not I don't want I came here to alleviate people's fear and to teach them how important it is to love themselves and because uh, because when you love yourself what it means is not just about loving your body it's about loving the whole you it's about loving your soul and when you love yourself you allow yourself who you came you allow yourself to be who you came here to be because we are all facets of God or facets of the universe or facets of source, whatever we want to call it. All of us are facets of that. When you don't love yourself, you don't allow that source to express itself through you. You suppress it because you, you don't love yourself. You think there's something wrong with you. You feel you need to meet other people's approval. And so you don't express who you came here to be. When you love yourself, you allow God or source to express itself through you. And I feel we don't have a right to deny God or source to express itself through us, which means we don't have a right not to love ourselves.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I I think I really resonated with in your book, even though I've not had a near-death experience, I've had many direct experiences around death and around people who have passed on, and then having communication with them and feeling how aurically different they are when they're gone. I mean, even my father, who died three months ago now, uh, has been with me a lot in the garden this week, and he is lighter and brighter and no longer dealing with the density. And, and so, That side I was familiar with when I read your book, but I also had gone through my own, probably the biggest spiritual awakening I'd gone through at the beginning of 2009. And it was identical to how you felt for about three weeks, (laughs) or about three, four weeks. And there was no, it was, it was, I was, I was euphoric and, and nothing, nothing, there was no problem, there was no anything. And then my, my whole life kind of fell apart in the following year, which is often what I now know happens to people when they have big awakenings. It's like it rearranges the foundation. So I really had direct experience of your book. And, and from what I see of the people who resonate with your book, whether it's because they had an NDE or whether it's because it's the realm of the soul that they also understand, people connected to it. But I can really imagine some of the kickback and the pushback that you would get from people um, for whom it challenges their belief or their ideology. So how did you go from that experience to this book, Dying to Be Me, which has gone around the world this last decade?
1: Um, So it still blows my mind how many people resonate with with what I've said. And it is so assuring for me because it means that, that people, there are millions of people who do get it. Mm -hmm. So um, when, so, so what happened is that I, I struggled in, you know, I guess, as, as we said, the first few months were absolutely euphoric. It took about maybe a year because it was such a big experience, but it took maybe a year for me to really then start feeling heavy and start questioning why did I come back? And uh, maybe maybe I should have stayed there. And, yeah, I started to feel that, that, that it's so hard to stay euphoric because it felt almost like people were trying to take the gift away from me. That's kind of what it felt like. Um, and so I then started to just write and write and write about my own experience. And I found an online forum, and I was sharing privately, totally privately. I didn't want to share publicly anymore. I stopped doing the medical conferences. One of the things I didn't like about the medical conferences is because in their trying so hard to um, make sense of it and trying to prove it, it, it really felt like they were, um, how would you say, they were, they were challenging me. In other words, it was easier for them to knock what I was saying or to take away what I was saying or dilute what I was saying, it was easier for them to do that than to take on board or believe or or, take it, or to take on board what I was saying and take it as true. Do, do you know what I mean there? Completely. Um, yeah. So, so I struggled with that and I, I completely stopped doing medical conferences. Um, and I'll give you an example of the kinds of questions like I think was – I did one like three years after, so I did quite a few the first year, and then they kind of wore me down because of the kinds of questions that people have, in the second year, and I tapered it down. And there was one I remember in my the third year, three years after the NDE, and I did one. And then a question that um, somebody asked me, and I was and I was really really focused on what I had learned on the other side and how what I believed contributed to getting the illness, but also how we're all connected, blah blah blah. Bear in mind, these are medical people, people out of medical school and and all that. So then one of the questions that came after was this, uh, g- this guy said, "How many years have you been in remission for?" So I said, um, uh, and I don't use the word remission mm. because I felt right from day one that I was done with it. I was healed. so I never even used the word remission. but I ended, you know, I didn't want to correct him as a medical doctor, so I said, this happened three years ago. So I didn't even say I've been in remission. I said, this happened three years ago and I've been cancer-free since. And he said, well, you know that you have to be in remission for five years. So you shouldn't even be standing here talking about it until five years after. So that's the kind of stuff I would face. It's like they want to put that fear back into you. That's what it felt like. I don't think he did it deliberately, I'm sure that he didn't have any malice in his intention. But the system, what it does is it keeps you in that fear state. And that's when I realized I need to get out of this physical world. This physical world is so entrenched in fear. And that is the fear that depleted me, that gave me the illness in the first place. Mm. This three-dimensional, five-sensory world that we are immersed in it, it, it actually keeps us in this fear-based state. You only have to watch the news to, to see that what I'm saying is true. Especially Whereas we now. Are,
0: especially
1: <laughs> especially now. right
0: now. Like never yeah. more than now is it obvious, yeah.
1: We are not supposed to be living in that state. Whereas you look at every system, every government system, every political system, every school, education system, medical system, they keep us in this fear-based, limited victim five-sensory, three-dimensional, fear-based space. And so I realized I, if I want to shine my light the way I learned on the other side, if I want to be that light, I need to remove myself from this physical reality. So I did. We did become a little bit reclusive, bit of hermit. Um, I started writing. I had friends when I explained this to them, you know, because one of the things that contributed to me getting so sick also, which I didn't mention earlier, was the fear of cancer. I had people dying of cancer around me, and I watched people die of cancer and get sicker. I had this big fear of cancer, apart from a fear of not fitting in and all. And so when I got the diagnosis, I took it as a death sentence. Mm. But it was only on the other side that I realized that, we, you know, every, we co-create everything. I wasn't just a victim. It didn't randomly happen to me. The people who I saw pass away, die from cancer, um, they wanted to leave. There was a part of them at that point, or they had an agreement to leave. And, and the thing is, they were, they were totally fine on the other side, and, they, and, they, and it was their time. So I started to have this very different relationship with death and illness which just didn't fit in our three-dimensional five-sensory paradigm. So I had to remove myself. I had friends tell me that I was delusional. Um, So I had to even remove myself from those friends because I realized if I immerse myself back into this world when people are not ready to hear what I'm trying to say, I will then be that person again who got the cancer in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, So we became kind of hermits. We created a new life in a new town um, outside of the city of Hong Kong, which is where we used to live in Hong Kong. And um, I started writing and writing and writing. And I started um, communicating with people online. And then what happened is that I started to really get stronger and stronger in my own beliefs because I was not in the world anymore. And I wanted to get to a place where I was really strong in my beliefs. And then one day when I really realized that, oh my gosh, I truly get it. I just have to stick with my truth, whether people believe it or don't believe it. I just have to be who I am and not compromise it. And I was like really in a strong place. And it was when I was in that strong place, literally, I swear, I received an email from um, Hay House and I'd never communicated with them in my life. They had never, they never knew who I was before. I received an email from Hay House uh, saying that Wayne Dyer has discovered your story on the internet and, would, and we are reaching out to you to see if you are interested in writing a book about your story, which we will publish. And Wayne Dyer would like to write the forward to it and help you to share it with the world. And I started crying when I got that email. And that email arrived in my inbox on my birthday oh, in wow. 2011. That's yes.
0: hilarious. In and, 2011, and you
1: know, it took me. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you know Wayne before? Were you aware of Wayne and Wayne's work?
1: I was aware of his work. So it blew my mind that he had even heard of me. Because my story was on the internet. I had shared it on a website I hadn't even put my full name. It was just called Anita M's Near-Death Experience. And there was some clues in there that I was from Hong Kong and all. Somehow they tracked me down. And remember, I was just Anita living in Hong Kong. Anita Like I had no book. I had no, I had no social media following. I had nothing, like no nothing. I was invisible. No social media, nothing. Um, I was living in, in a small town, a small village in Hong Kong, And to get an email to say Wayne Dyer had discovered my story. Um, So that was just, it it just blew my mind. It was like, oh, my gosh. And it came literally on the day where I felt, huh, I think now I'm ready to share my story. (laughs) And it was my birthday, March 2011, March 16,
0: 2011. amazing. And I always feel with those things that we get ready, not just because we're ready, but because some part of us knows that over there on the left, events are lining up. So that when we're ready, we can step in and we start to sense it like some, you know, I I always feel that it's not just that we got ready that day. So the email came we got ready that day because the email had been being talked about for a week. So it's like it speeds us up too. I always feel that with anything big that's being shared with the world, it's like I always advise creators who are like, oh God, the book's just not flowing. I'm like, well, then it isn't time for you or the world. Because if it was time for you and the world, the book would flow and it would come out. Like I firmly believe that when it's something that's supposed to connect with other people, it's always bigger than just you.
1: Yes. In fact, can I share something about yeah. that too? So when Wayne and I finally spoke, so I, I was so blessed. I got to travel with him for four years. He was my mentor for four years. But he, he said to me that, you, do you know how hard it was to track you down? And uh, I said, well, yeah, I guess I can imagine because it said it, there was no information about how to track me down on those pieces of writing. And he said, it took Hay House five months to track you down. So what was interesting to me is it took Hay House five months to track me down. But the day they tracked me down was the day I was ready to share my message and it was my birthday. So it was so interesting because it was that birthday that I decided I am ready. I am ready to do this. It had taken me five years from the NDE to the day that I decided I'm ready to face the world again. And that was the day I got the email. And it took them five months to track me down. Five and so, five. I love that. Yeah. But it was so interesting that the, the email, that, you know, it's like they wouldn't have tracked me down earlier because I wasn't ready. So yeah. it was, yeah. yeah. So it's and, just so interesting how it happens.
0: I'm curious, Anita, how... Um, and in a moment, we're going to bring Danny in, into the into the uh, conversation because I wanted to hear how all of this was for Danny, too. But I'm curious for you, you know, your last decade has seen you become a speaker, an author. You've created audio meditations. You've taught on video. You have a community, a membership community. What... you, you you know, none of that was necessarily part of your vision. I know that you were a, a cultural trainer before. So training people and, and teaching in some, in some way was part of you. But were you nervous going into any of these things? Like with each new foray, did you feel any nerves? Or were you able to just embrace it all as an adventure and just kind of keep going until it, it, it's now all built around you?
1: So it's a lot of it is the latter that it's just sort of built around me. It's happened organically, but um, when Wayne Dyer first introduced me to the audience on stage the very first time, which was the end of two thousand and eleven because he discovered me in March two thousand and eleven, and then in October, Hay House flew me to Los Angeles to a, an event where Wayne Dyer was speaking. The first time he launched me on stage in front of three thousand people, I was very, very nervous, and I'd never spoken on stage before, certainly never in front of three thousand people, and so I was really nervous. And um, and it was um, so when he pulled me up on stage and he told me to share my story, I started stammering, and he said, he said, "What are you scared?" And I said, yeah, I've never spoken on stage before. And, and I was looking out at this sea of people. And he goes, you've been dead and back. What have you got to be scared about? <laughs> <laughs> and then I actually said to him, I said, being dead is easier than public speaking. <laughs> and then the audience were laughing. And then I just kind of warmed up after that. But after that, it just got easier and easier just speaking on stage. And then everything else just kind of happened organically from there. And Wayne was an amazing mentor because I even told him about how I had struggled with the uh, people saying that messages I was giving was dangerous and stuff like that, or, or there were people who were attacking things I was saying. And he said, never worry about that. He said, that's actually a good sign because it means that your message has gone beyond the, like basically you're preaching beyond the choir. Mm -hmm. And when it starts to become a threat to people, that's actually a really, really good sign. He -hmm. said, it means your audience, he said, every time your audience gets broader, you're going to hit a new level of skeptics. So every time you hit a layer of skeptics, it means that your audience has just got even broader. So he taught me to look at it that way, which I loved. And so then I... Stopped, yeah. So I stopped fearing the skeptics as much. And so that was really good. Um, so, yeah, it's all kind of happened since. So since then it's happened organically. It still blows my mind that um, different languages, you know, different countries are publishing it. And I thought my book wouldn't do well in India um, because, because I do, you know, as an Indian woman and, and things that I speak about, and I was shocked that my book actually hit number one in India. And when I go to India, I actually get recognized by people. So that, that blew my mind. I thought, wow, this is really incredible. What I learned on the other side is actually true. That what I, you know, like while I was here, I thought these were negative traits. But in actuality, people, are, they, they want you to express that because it gives them permission to be who they are without judgment.
0: Yeah, the empowerment work that the book will be doing in a place like India especially as you are identifiable to Indian women in that culture and perhaps to some of the men too to just shake up shake up the game and shake up the traditions and allow them to expand. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Fantastic. Well, just before we bring Danny in, um I'm really excited about your next book which I think you told me about maybe a year or so ago. And it's called Sensitive is the New Strong. And when you told me the title, I was like, oh, that's so good because it's so true. And I feel like it's a truth that has been absent in our world. I think often we use the word sensitive. I think for those of us who understand being a highly sensitive person, we don't tend to think of it that way. But in mainstream culture... Often I think sensitive is used as a judgment. Oh, she's very sensitive. Oh, he's being very sensitive today. You know, it's kind of a put down and it's often seen as a weakness. Whereas the truth is sensitive is the new strong. And if you can have your sensitivity and your vulnerability intact, it usually requires a certain level of strength or ability with boundaries in order to be able to allow that sensitivity and that vulnerability into the world. You normally have had to learn how to be strong in order to protect, nurture, and hold that sensitivity. So I'm super excited, not just about the book that you have coming out next year, that I think I said it to you at the time, I said, oh, this is going to be your next, your kind of next yes. thing, you know, the next I- iteration of your work so far, really just changing the the game around what it is to be a sensitive.
1: Oh, thank you for mentioning that because I am actually really super excited Uh, again, not just about the book, but the direction, because um, I feel I'm just getting started. This is interesting. I feel the last 10 years has been to prepare me for now, what I'm going to be doing now for this new phase of the direction our world is going in. Because, um, oh, and the subtitle of the book is The Power of Empaths in an Increasingly Harsh World. Mm. So, Um, And so the the reason for this book is because one of the things I realized over these last few years is that I am an empath. I hadn't even heard of that word until a a few years ago. And, um, and, And so people are discovering that they are empaths. And I actually feel that empaths are the ones that are often made to feel that there's something wrong with them and that we are the ones that have to suppress our sensitivity and learn to grow a thicker skin and be stronger. But that's wrong. When you read books about how to help sensitive people, but mostly the books are trying to tell you how to be less sensitive. My point, it's, my point is that the problems of this world today is because we are not sensitive enough. Yeah. That's why we are where we are today with all the problems that we have we have actually been judging sensitivity as a weakness and we have been uh, and we think people who are who use brute force who are less sensitive we actually look up to them and think of those traits as being strong we teach our kids to be less sensitive because we think in order to be successful you need to have a thicker skin and we say boys don't cry and uh, you know and so on so basically my point is that if we continue like that, it's going to take us to the brink of our own extinction. Because look at what we're doing. Look at what our leaders are doing. They're comparing sizes of their nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in order to take us to the next level of our evolution, we need to recognize empathy, compassion, sensitivity as being strengths. We need to recognize that that is what is going to evolve us. And, um, and we need to really start to realize that if we're going to survive, we need to do it together as a whole. And so that's really what, uh, you know, why I'm so excited about this is because that is my focus in the next phase. And I think it is so needed. One of the things that I touch on in the book is how um, sensitive people, empathic people, We're attracted to spiritual teachings, Um, but the problem is our current spirituality, in many cases, although it's beautiful and it makes us feel amazing, it doesn't empower us to go out into the world to to embrace our sensitivity as strengths. Many spiritual teachings actually tell us to um, suppress our ego and to be small and to dim our light and to be humble and to be of service. I know all my past spiritual teachings taught me that. And I realized that for sensitive people, for empaths, you need a different type of spiritual teaching. You need a spiritual teaching that teaches you how to go out in the world and shine your light bright because the world needs you. The world needs empaths. The world needs empaths to embrace leadership positions. Don't suppress your ego if you're an empath. You actually need to be out there in the front lines. We need a different kind of spiritual teaching for empaths. And a different kind of spiritual teaching post 2020
0: hallelujah baby it's beautiful i love I love it, And I remember getting all the tingles when we were in the restaurant and you told me the title of the book, and I just said, "Oh, this is going to be big for you and big for and big for the world, because as I listen to you talking, you know I want to encourage anyone listening or watching this show." Um, that if you're getting the tingles as you listen to Anita, you know, we, we are all needed and now is our time. That's a message that my guides, who I've been channeling for 20 something years, have been saying in the last three years. And, and I really feel the truth of that, especially if you bemoan the state of the world or you feel that something's missing out there in the world, it's our job to fill it. It's our job to be it because we're we're just the next iteration in the tribe and the hive that we're all in as humanity to to kind of be the worker bees to try and bring it and figure it out. And like you said, to be very grounded. Like for me, spirituality was separate for a while. And then there came a key point for me when I was like, Well, I'm also a very grounded human being and that's where I learn. So how do I merge the two? So I love I love your message and I can't wait for the book. But Without further ado, because I'm conscious of time, I'm thrilled that Danny has agreed to join us. So we'll just bring him on to the, onto the screen now. So Danny, thank you so much, because I know when I asked you to do this, you understandably said to me, well, Anita's the one who's normally on camera, but I think the reason I so wanted to talk to you is you're such a pivotal part of not only the story of what you went through with Anita, but also this past decade, you and Anita run all of this work together. And you are the behind the scenes, the technical side and, and and managing everything that the two of you do. So thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for having me, Lee. Thank you.
0: So Danny, if we can just go back a little bit, that must have been one hell of a time for you in your life when Anita was going through everything with the cancer and then the coma, like how, how was that for you at that time? You must have
2: Oh, right. Um, let's see. Um, one hell of a time. Yeah, that would be very, very much a, an understatement. Um, my friends were actually wondering um, if I was actually secretly hitting the bottle to to be able to, uh, to, to deal with everything. Because it is, as you can imagine, um, a highly traumatic uh, type of thing. I, re- I remember when we were first... At the uh, at the doctor's office, Anita went in for a for a for a, uh, what would have been a uh, a run of the mill uh, checkup. You know, she said she had this swelling on her on her neck, and uh, so I went in. When the doctor said, um, "You better come," and the doctor said to Anita, "Well, what it is is cancer," and you know, I had to be strong for Anita because I mean, she had a meltdown right there, but. For me, it was, I don't know, like getting kicked in the gut by a mule. Mm. Um, You know, it it was, it completely knocked the wind out of my sails. It completely crippled me. But, you know, one doesn't let it show, you know, because it's a case of, all right, this is about Anita. This is not about me. Mm. So it's, I don't know. What's the, what's, what's the word? I mean, y- at the end of the day, you know, it's...
0: Well, you had to be the rock, right? You have to be the... You want to be the strong partner. Well,
2: it's not a case of I want to be the strong partner. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a situation that one is just um, thrown into and one just does what one does. I've, we've heard of lots and lots of people, lots and lots of couples where as soon as something like this um, is a diagnosis from one partner, the other one just bails. Mm. I remember just after Anita was given the all clear and uh, the local media in Hong Kong started picking up the, uh, the story, we got uh, a phone call from somebody quite random, something we've never, ever met. And this person said, I'd like to take you out to lunch and, and chat with you. Well, Okay, when a random stranger rings you up and says they want to take you out for lunch, it's like, why? What have you got to to, to say? And, mm. you know, there was a, a thinking, okay, all right, let's explore this. But rather than me coming out for lunch to your home, you just come down to my club and I'll buy you lunch and you can tell me what you want. Long story short, he was telling us about how he had been diagnosed with cancer, I don't know, five, six, eight years I, I don't remember, but um, his spouse just bailed on him in, in about uh, three months. And I thought, oh, well, okay, all right, there's seven billion people on the planet. That's one in seven billion. Uh, a week later, it went to one in 3.5 billion. And then I heard more and more and more and more stories, you know. And it's like now it's it's really scary. It's something like one in 300,000 people tend to, tend to bail. Um, You know, it's, and I can understand, but at the time it was, it was a case of, okay, all right, Anita's not well, um, I'm going to do whatever I can to to support her.
1: Um, For you, it wasn't even an option to bail, that's the thing I love about him, it was, he didn't even treat it like an obligation, he never, he was, he never resented it, he was just there as if there's nowhere else he'd rather be.
2: Yeah, I guess somewhere I'd actually read the contract, you know, it says insignificant and in Health. <laughs> <laughs> I actually read the fine print. You know, so. Well, and you've been
0: married 24 and a half years, I need to just confirm for me. So yeah, that's has it. been that long. Pretty...
1: Yes, and we're still together. Oh, <laughs> God,
2: you're still talking to me.
1: I know, it's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.
2: So I mean, I have to buy, I have to buy you a card or something else.
1: <laughs> More than that.
2: Uh, sorry.
0: No, oh, no, it's, it's great. Um, Dan, Danny. I was going to ask you, obviously, when Anita comes back from the coma, it must feel like a miracle and a relief. But I'm curious, when she told you what she had gone through with the near-death experience... How was that for you? And was that something you'd heard of or was it completely new to you? And that must have been quite a mixture of feelings you were having at that point.
2: Well, when Anita first opened her eyes and she started telling us about this experience that she had, she'd met her dad and all this type of stuff, I tended to take the more scientific approach, which was, okay, we know that with the amount of, cancer cells that were going through Anita's uh, body we knew that she'd had uh, 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 fluid buildup in her lungs breathing was incredibly difficult her oxygen uptake was incredibly low um, and it was like okay all right a, a, a little bit of um, a, a little bit of brain damage um, obviously uh, difficulties in, in comprehension what was going on um, quite normal but as she started to, to tell us more, she very quickly mentioned a conversation that I had had with her doctor. She was in a coma. She was already in a coma in the hospital at the time. She told me a conversation I had with her doctor. Now, this wasn't in her room. Now, she had a private room. The door was shut. Her bed was I don't know 15 feet away, um, three meters away from the door the door was shut and I had the conversation at the um what do, what do they call it here in the Good. United States? The the nurse's station now that must have been 15 meters 15 yards down the corridor mm. um, so I was standing there at the nurse's station having a conversation with her doctor and she repeated that conversation to me almost verbatim wow and at that point it was like ah You've had an out-of-body experience. Okay. So the fact that she was able to tell me about that conversation, the fact that I understood about out-of-body con- uh, experiences, the, the fact that I knew near-death experiences um, were were something that happened, it was very, very easy for me to just say, okay, you've just had an NDE or, or an out-of-body experience. Um, and therefore, everything else that you're telling me about you're going to be fine and you're going to... They're going to heal. You know, it was a a, a no brainer. It was just okay. This is a fact. This is reality.
1: Yeah, but you were you you were. Uh, I remember him being super excited and like. Uh,
2: oh, when you when you first opened your eyes. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, of course, yes. I mean, I don't know if you're if Lee, you're you're. Probably not old enough, and I I don't know how many of your viewers are old enough to to remember a cartoon character in the United States called Ziggy. Now, Ziggy um, had a hairstyle uh, identical to to you and uh, and I, um, and he looked more like me. He was a very, very round character, and when Ziggy got excited, he would bounce on tippy-toe. And that's very, very much what I was doing. I was literally bouncing on tippy-toe, you know, when uh, Anita opened her eyes. uh, You know, I was like, yay!
0: I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. And, and, And it's interesting because one of the things that then happened is when Anita writes this book and this book goes out to the world, in this past eight, nine years, you have been there at Anita's side working with Anita on all of this. So even though you're often behind the camera or behind the sound desk, or if it's a live event, you might be running the beautiful backdrops that you you guys use that are animated and video. And um, you're very much together, the two of you, in this together, doing this together, making all of this happen, even though Anita is the front person for it. So how is that to be a, a couple who are working together to bring this to the world? How is it for you, Danny?
2: Oh, I'd say that you know it's 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 very very rewarding to be able to you know uh, as you as you quite correctly say um my preference is to be on stage but behind the curtains um, or you know up in the up in the sound booth wherever. But when Anita finishes her, her presentations, uh, her live presentations, you know, and I get the opportunity to walk around, um, you know, during her book signings or or, or during the breaks, um, for the most part, uh, most people have no clue who I am. You know, I'm just another face that's uh, that's that's in the crowd, um, and it gives me an excellent opportunity just to just to listen in to what people are saying, and you know. I've always, I've always been one of these people that's um, thought that if I can do something to put a smile on somebody's face, um, that's pretty much made my day. And I'm listening to people saying how just listening to the presentation, or you know, be doing the exercise or the meditation or whatever, has made such a a, a profound change not in not in them, but in their core, you yeah. know, down in their psyche, um, right? And just by sitting there, just, you know, listening to Anita or her exercise or meditation or what have you, um, that's really, really rewarding. It just, I don't know, it just, it just you know, a big smile on the face, a big smile in the heart, yeah. you know. It's, it's, that, it's that bouncing on tippy-toe again, you know. It's like, ah, you know, we've been, we've been able to make a difference to somebody, you know, even if it's that one person. Forgive the mad gesticulations, but... Uh, no, no, it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's nice to be able to, to have, you know, that type of experience or to witness that type of experience with people.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And Anita, how is it for you being able to work with your husband to do all of this?
1: Uh, I love it because I trust him implicitly. And uh, so he's involved in every aspect of it, everything from, uh, although we do have a team of people, but it's so great to have somebody who I trust implicitly. that Just Click the mouse at the right time. <laughs> but no, everything from Screening uh, screening interviews, from screening uh, events, you know, when I um, because I get invited to speak at events. And so it's so great that he has no agenda. It's very different. Like I, I hear from people who are working with agents or people who make a commission on what they do. So there's an agenda with Danny, there's no agenda because I trust him implicitly. So everything that he tells me or everything, every advice he gives me or every request that comes in when he's giving his opinion as to whether I should do it or not comes from a place of love, just purely like whether he thinks it would be good for me or not and whether it would be something that serves me or is loving for me or not. And so it's just wonderful having the person who loves me uh, unconditionally and who I love unconditionally to be as entrenched in my work as I am, and I just love that. I love mm-hmm.
0: that. That's beautiful. And and unfortunately, because of time, we're going to have to draw to a close. But before we go, I just want to thank you both for Danny, especially to you for agreeing to come and be a part of this and to speak to us. Um, but for all that you've done to impact the world, and knowing you personally the way I do. Um, I just really appreciate with both of you your kindness and generosity as people because it's always important to me that those values that work holds is also mirrored in the person in real life, and you two both have that in spades as well as making me laugh. Of course it's the British humor, but um, but I'm curious what are you both excited about for? 2021. What What are you each looking forward to in 2021? Danny, maybe we'll start with you about about everything you're doing together. Oh, that's a
2: tough. That's a tough question. I'm actually going to defer to Anita here. Very good. She's She's got the She's got the bigger picture. Um, I'm I'm merely the mouse clicker. (laughs) The mouse (laughs) clicker. I like that.
1: Danny's very detailed, so I'm more the visionary. And he's the one that puts in the steps to make it happen, and so even though, as I said, we By have a team, yes. and even Shardin though we pencil. have a I mean, even though we have a team, it then you know, yeah, he's the one who kind of devises the steps. But but I think what I'm excited about is growing our platform. I thought that's one thing you would be excited about, absolutely, because he's super excited about that growing our platform. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'm excited about is my new book, which launches in 2021. I feel that's the start of a whole new phase uh, for me in talking about sensitivity and how it affects our health and everything, everything, how it affects our world. So I'm excited about that and just really excited about bringing a new kind of awareness of um, spirituality or whatever post 2020. I really feel we're entering a new phase. I really do. And uh, I'm super excited about it. And uh, I just wanted to say one thing I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Danny, and I just felt the need to say that.
2: Yeah, I to switch on the camera.
1: <laughs> and he's the reason I came back from the other side. Mm. Truly, truly, he is the reason.
0: So, Danny, we all have you to thank. We all have you to thank.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to say to that, so I'll just...
0: <laughs> well, you know, thank you both for coming on the show and just as your friend... I adore both of you and um, yeah, thank you for all you're doing. And I agree, I agree with everything you said about next year onwards for you guys. So for anybody who has enjoyed meeting Anita and Danny for the first time, or if you haven't really explored more of Anita's work, you can go to Anitamorjani.com, and we will put links to her website and also her books in the show notes for this interview. But thank you both and big love.
1: Thank you. We adore you as well.
0: You have been listening to Impact the World. For more of my work, please visit leeharrisenergy.com. This August, I'm doing something a little bit different. From the 18th to the 26th, me and my team are bringing to you a virtual soul magic experience. We've run soul magic retreats for the last four years and we would have been going to Costa Rica this October for our fifth one, but because we can't and also because I've been feeling a calling to hand over the microphone to my guides, the Zs, a little more of late, we have created a brand new experience for you called Transmissions 2020. In it, there will be five live broadcasts which will be entirely channeled. These broadcasts will focus on you accessing more of your magnetic energy. I've chosen to broadcast all of these live because that way I know the material will be specially curated for those of you who show up to take this experience with us. Added to this, we have for you a special music album and it's Sound Healing Pieces from Devor Bozik, with my spoken words weaved throughout. And when you do sign up, the first track from the Transmissions Sound Healing Album will be available for you immediately. So to find out more about what Transmissions 2020 entails, you can visit transmissions 2020com And if it resonates for you to take this special journey with us, we'll look forward to welcoming you there.